Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go here we are with the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degatti along with my friend and co-host mike perry we are at episode 69 and this is a pretty important one mike we get this this topic coming up quite a bit uh i think everybody uh in the whole entire planet knows about this topic because they've probably experienced at some point but before i go ahead and uh, steal your thunder i'm gonna i'm gonna let you introduce our uh our, our guest for today yeah, he is, as you like to say up in Boston, this guy is wicked smart. He's a right, Boston guy, have, that's why. <laughs> we got Dr. Kyle Matzel, and he's on the faculty at the University of Evansville out in Indiana, and he's an associate professor of physical therapy where he teaches in the musculoskeletal content areas of the doctor of physical therapy curriculum. And he's also the program director of the PhD program in health professions education. Got his uh, doctorate in physical therapy, uh, University of Evansville. He's got his PhD in rehab sciences from University of Kentucky. Um, his research interests are identifying musculoskeletal injury risk factors, which we're going to talk a whole bunch about, and implementation of arm care exercise programs for baseball players. So if we have a little time, we might sneak in a little baseball and I geek out about that. But um, he's also director of uh, pro rehab and university at Evansville sports physical therapy residency program. And he's a board certified clinical specialist in sports through American board of uh, physical therapy specialties. And is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Um, now he presents nationally on topics from uh, related to comprehensive systematic movement-based assessment and testing. And is a consultant with a number of collegiate professional sports teams. And he's a good friend and we're happy to have him here. Welcome Dr. Matzel. Oh, thanks guys so much. It's, it's really, truly an honor uh, to be on here and have a little time to discuss some topics that we're all passionate about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Eric, before we dive in, anything you want to start off with? You want me to get rolling? Dive in, buddy. Let's go. All right. So um, we're going to be talking about uh, low back pain, but let's start by talking about how much of a problem it is. Um, can you give us some basic stats on how prevalent uh, low back pain is in Western society and the impact it's it's made both uh, individually and globally. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's very, very prevalent, right? It's it, it's everywhere. You know, I, I teach entry-level DPT uh, for physical therapy students. And one of the messages that we always are giving uh, our students that are going into outpatient physical therapy practices is that you are going to encounter low back pain. There is no way around it. Uh, you have got patients that are going to be coming in at all spectrums of low back pain, acute, chronic, subacute, uh, radiculopathies, muscular joint, it, it really doesn't matter. There's so many different versions of it. Uh, and so and the prevalence is so high. I mean, one statistic that 
I uh, recently had read that it's really over 50% of all of the caseload that their typical outpatient uh, therapist uh, sees. So 50% of your working day is largely going to be dealing with low back pain if you're a rehabilitation therapist uh, in, a, in an outpatient setting. Uh, worldwide, globally, it's an epidemic. Uh, you're talking, you know, almost a billion people worldwide. I mean, 700, 800 million people worldwide with currently with low back pain. And you know, the thing about it is, um, it's, it's a large contributor to disability. It's a large contributor to work-related uh, difficulties, but only about half of those folks are actually even seeking care. You know, half, half those people are actually even going in to rehabilitation and getting the treatment. So it's a big problem and there's a lot we could do for it. So one of the one of the questions uh, that I have for you is as far as low back goes is, um, you know, this is what everybody comes in and says, yeah, I, I've got a slip disc or I've got a bulge disc, a bulge disc or I have a bad disc. And it seems to me that everybody categorizes low back pain as a disc issue. And is that do you think that's because of uh, like a lack of the ability to truly diagnose or is it a very gen generic term or general term, just like adding a, an itis or a, an, a tendinosis on the end of something? I mean, why do you feel like so many people are blaming it on discs? Well, it's 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 something culturally. I think we kind of bring up. We we like to blame pathoanatomical uh, lesions whenever we can, right? It's just simple. It's just it's the it's the traditional medical model, right? It's and it's no one's fault. It's just literally just how it was uh, introduced traditionally. You come up through medical school. You come up through physical therapy school. You got to blame something, right? And oh, I can take a, a radiograph. I can take an MRI image. I can see. Oh, look, there's a little abnormality. There's a little lesion. There's a little disc problem oh that must be the root of all evil that must be the thing that's causing all your pain and you know as we've learned over the years is it's very rarely is that really the case it's it's so many of these discs and degenerative changes there's just natural consequence of aging to some degree and i mean a lot of them are completely asymptomatic and are causing zero problems uh, we actually are causing more problems sometimes identifying them on the scans and then, you know, put them on a pedestal because then it freaks the patient out largely. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, I have a disc. Oh, my gosh, I have degeneration. And that actually does more mentally uh, to cause, you know, pain and disability for the patient than it does even physically. So it's it's a big issue for sure. Yeah, well, we could talk about the labeling of that, and we're going to definitely circle back about the significance of, of imaging and so forth in a little bit. And sometimes I think it's just because it's the only thing people know in their back. It's like with shoulders, when how many people come up, hey, I got a rotor cuff issue, you know, because the only thing they know is their rotator cuff, and they don't even name that right. So, uh, but I, I digress. I want to, I want to kind of go early in on this and, and, and pull the pin and roll the grenade under the door, Dr. Matzel. And let's talk about injury prevention, which is something that will set off a, a fury if you, you put that out on social media. And there's a lot of debate about it, right? Is there anything that we can do to prevent or at least mitigate uh, the risk of low back injuries? Yeah, great question. And that's really the million dollar question. I mean, we're as a society moving a lot more towards being proactive, trying to be uh, recognize risk factors, try to recognize what we can do to, you know, mitigate, manage, keep these uh, episodes of low back pain down, because economically, it's a great burden, right? I mean, so we, we, we're really insurance companies are finally getting on board with, oh, you mean we need to be doing some things and some testing and some screening to uh, be able to reduce these uh, from ever even turning into a large 
economic burden. Uh, but with that to say, yeah, I mean, the problem with back pain is it's so multifactorial, right? It's not as simple a lot of times as just blaming a, a particular muscle or a particular joint or one particular movement. It, it, like most things, it, it's very much multifactorial. Sure, core stability. Sure, mobility problems at the hip and pelvis. Sure, mobility problems at the T-spine. And you can even go all the way down the chain to the ankle. I know that regional interdependence is a real thing. We all like to look at movement and try to integrate that into our function. So certainly all of these uh, impairment measures to in one degree or another have been shown to be independent risk factors of back pain, but let's not fool ourselves. It's not that simple, right? Because lifestyle plays a big role. If you're not, if you're only sleeping a couple hours a night, if you're not well hydrated, if you're not eating a, a good diet, then those things are going to cause your back to be in a bad place as well. The back is just a frequently um, frequent uh, area of the body that manifests symptoms for sure. Now, what are some things, whether on the professional side, whether I'm a, a rehab specialist and clinician, or uh, even on the, the fitness side, what are some, or even down to the layperson who's actually experiencing this, what are some of the things we can do in terms of early detection? And, and the reason why I asked this question is because uh, I actually had a post about this a couple of weeks ago, and I used a, um, a, a pop culture reference that that really dates me. All right. Now, I'll, let's see if you remember this, Matzel. Do you remember the Woody Woodpecker cartoon? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. So one of my favorite episodes is, is if Woody would have went straight to the police, none of this would have ever happened. And so um, I use that reference with my clients all the time because I said, look, you needed to come in six months ago and this would have been a whole lot easier, right? So guy I saw this morning, he was dealing with, with, with back pain and, but he kind of ignored it and did the Advil and ice kind of deal to, to get him through until eventually got so far along, he, he sought out help. And now our job's a whole lot harder. So talk about what we can do in terms of early detection, and how important that is. So they don't get to you in a clinic where it's so far gone that there's not a whole lot you can do. Yeah, no, that's that, that's great. Absolutely. You know, um, Woody Woodpecker just became popular uh, for my three-year-old here recently. Uh, he's just discovered Woody Woodpecker and is watching some shows and stuff. Spectacular. Yeah. Good parenting on your behalf. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll always... You know, I always think about a story that Gray Cook actually told me a long time ago. He said in one of his early jobs, he was working in a hospital and he walked into a room and the patient was there with low back pain. And, you know, they reeked of cigarette smoke, was sitting there drinking a Mountain Dew and was probably, you know, 50 pounds overweight and was like, yeah, help me. My back hurts. And, you know, it's like, well, of course your back hurts. I mean, you know, like, you know, I don't have to do even a musculoskeletal exam on you at this point to tell you that, you know, that there's probably going to be some stress on your back. And 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 so I think the first thing is we really need to create some awareness and, and to the general population about, you know, it's not just all about core stability. Like I, I, I have patients even today that they come in with their low back and they're looking for the, the, the core stability, the exercise or the right stretch to improve their low back pain. And the problem with it is a lot of the core stability that they're doing that's, you know, on the, on the market or on the internet is, actually maybe even feeding into their problem and the stretching that they're doing, they don't need because they're already hypermobile. Right. So it's, it's a lot of times, you know, they're, they're, they're not in the right place, but they're trying to manage their symptoms through Google or through the internet or through curbside PT that a buddy gave them. And that just doesn't work. Right. Uh, they need to get in and get, and get looked at and they need to do it sooner rather than later. Kind of like you're, you're, you're alluding to the, the thing that I think the way of the future 
is because it's just it tends to be human nature to some degree for people to put their symptoms off right i mean it's been, we've been doing that since the beginning of the time it's like you have to literally be on fire and bleeding out of your eyes before you go to a doctor a lot a lot of times and so it's not surprising that you know you have all these millions and millions of people in low with low back pain yet there's only half of them are actually even getting in and consulting with a therapist or an athletic trainer or a medical doctor right um and and, and in that regard a lot of times the care they're even getting if they do get there is so unimpressive that they're like, well, I'm not going back. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's, and that's a whole another 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 problem. But I think the way of the future is really trying to create a mechanism for people to kind of self-screen themselves a little bit and, and start to um, create that awareness for them and self-check themselves. One of the big things that really helped with blood pressure management and diabetes management uh, you know, several years ago was really the ability for people to go in to a CVS and stick their arm in those automated blood pressure machines. And then eventually that turned into affordable cuffs that people, electronic cuffs that they can take home and they can monitor their own blood pressure. They can go and stick their own finger and get blood glucose readings and they can kind of track those metrics. So, you know, when they know that they have a problem, they now have a mechanism to see, okay, am I in range? Yes or no. And if I'm out of range, maybe this is a reality check that I need to go in and and get uh, more professional, more one-on-one uh, -on -one type of care. Um, but I think a lot of people are walking around out there just thinking, oh, it's back pain. I'm, you know, everyone's got back pain and I'm just getting older and, you know, I just got to deal with it. And that's really not the case. Yeah. I mean, the low back pain is a tough one because I've seen every single thing out there. I mean, so many people have come in and gotten referred to me because I've been able to help people with low back pain. And nine times out of 10, I'm like, let me guess, you did bird dogs, bridges, and clamshells. And they're like, yeah. And it didn't work. I'm like, of course it didn't work because you did the same thing over and over again. And you never actually graduated onto anything that was going to move the needle. But let me ask you this. Um, for some reason, people think that just doing a bunch of flexibility work is going to solve all of their problems. I've had so many people say, well, you just do, need to do more yoga. And if you do yoga, your back will get better. Or if you do hot yoga, it even get even better because it's hot, right? And, uh, and same thing with Pilates and this and that. Why do you think everybody is so hell bent on stretching their back pain away? Yeah, it feels good, right? Stretching, stretching feels good. People can feel it. It doesn't really take a lot of effort. They can just feel it and stretch it. And, you know, the, again, culturally, they've just been kind of put in their mind that, oh, well, this, I must just, if I stretch, I'll just feel better. And, and they probably do a lot of times, like you stretch yourself and, you know, for at least the next five or 10 minutes, you probably do feel a little bit better until you actually stand up and start walking around again. Right. Uh, but I, I, I think that, you know, we just, in our mind, we just have that sense that, oh, this is just what I need. Now, the problem that that's that's that's, you know, leading to um, the catastrophe that we're seeing with back pain and disability shooting through the roof is that nowadays what you actually have is you have people that tend to be a little bit more hypermobile. Right now, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of really tight you know, young athletes, tight, you know, uh, college athletes, professional athletes, and stretching came in, flexibility work, mobility work, the importance of that, all these risk factors tend to be mobility related a lot of times. So people became aware that, oh, I need to stretch, I need to do mobility work, I need to foam roll, I need to do these things. Great. So people started doing that like crazy. And now what we've actually got is really strong, really powerful hypermobile folks right so then they actually have all this strength and all this high threshold uh you know kind of strategy going on with no inner core stability very poor coordination and motor control throughout the body movements 
kind of not so good, but they can fake it till they make it because they've got pretty good mobility, right? And then they're good. We tend to do things that we like to do, right? And then people like, I like to stretch. I'm pretty loose. I'm pretty mobile. I have a problem. I'm going to do the thing I like to do and that's stretch. So they just stretch more and they make something that's relatively unstable, even more unstable, if that kind of makes some sense. So you're just kind of stretching, stretching, stretching a temporary neurophysiological relief of tone and then it comes right back and the overarching long-term consequence of that is you're just continuing to add fire fuel to that fire there's a couple points that i want to take and, and run with this topic kyle is, is one is some of that is the what i call the ask ask your doctor syndrome like drug companies say like ask your doctor like we could all pick up our phones right now and the three of us could not have to scroll long before we find somebody that says hey can you give me some stretches for my back Right. And how many clinicians, PTs, you know, strength coaches and trainers are just sending back pictures of stretches, right? Because it's an easy fix because they're asking for it. Here's your stretch. When the first question I ask is say, well, why do you think stretching is what you even need? How do you even know that that's the problem? Now, that's part of the issue. Part of the issue also is because I think, like you said, so much of our interventions are so mobility biased that a lot of the, the motor control people, and to Mike's point, where they've gone to PT, they've gone to this one and they failed, that get to me almost always are big motor control issues because we don't have really good diagnostics for that. So let's talk a little bit about, about how we A, detect someone who may be on that hypermobile scale and B, detect where they may be falling short on the other side from a motor control standpoint. Yep, yep. No, you're, you're right on the money there. I mean, I, I do this activity with my students uh, every year to bring awareness to this because, yeah, to put this in perspective, I'm teaching in a doctor of physical therapy program with, you know, these students are, I don't know, 22, 23 years old sometimes, you know, embarking on a doctorate, crazy smart, crazy motivated, good students, exercise science background, athletic training background, all of them, right? And in the very first year of their fall semester, we I teach a therapeutic exercise class and they all kind of roll their eyes, all oh, therapeutic exercise. I just majored in exercise science. I know all that stuff, right? And the very first thing that I do is I bring up everyone in the room that can't touch their toes, right? And I just say, all right, everyone stand up, see if you can touch your toes. People that can't touch your toes, come up here. And I go through and I kind of do a little quick check of to see is it truly people that you can't touch your toes because you're tight and have a mobility problem? Or is it truly that you can't touch your toes because it's that motor control coordination strength thing that you're talking about? So I differentiate that very quickly. I usually have about a 50-50 split. And I set all the people that are tight down and I breathe the people up that have the motor control. And all I do is I let them breathe. I go through diaphragmatic breathing throughout nerve developmental postures, you know, supine, prone, quadruped, kneeling, just sit there and just breathe i just it takes about five or ten minutes i'm sitting there talking coaching it you know they're all breathing up here in their upper chest you know no diaphragm all th high threshold right and i get them breathing through their diaphragm calm all that down five ten minutes later they stand up they, every single one of them touches their toes i've been doing this for eight years same activity for eight years and I, it always works every time and it it's the great way to show these exercise scientists athletic trainers that are getting ready to embark in a doctoral program it's not as simple as just kind of making an assumption about someone's uh, mobility, stability, and throwing a bunch of exercises at them and hoping it's going to work. You've got to do a little bit on the back end here to see if uh, if what you're going to do is actually going to be beneficial. So 
all that to say, you know, I just think that it's so important uh, for us to have a little bit of a system in place and be a little bit better than just shopping the next three good exercises out. You know, I, I, I used the word uh, curbside PT earlier. I mean, you imagine I've got students, I've got friends, you know, family members, you know, we all have had these folks that call you up and say, Hey, Eric, you know, my knee's hurting. Can you give me a couple exercises for that? And, and I'll tell you, I'm probably, I'm probably zero for 1,942 on making people better with curbside PT. Like anytime a family member or a student or anyone comes up to me and says, my shoulder hurts, my back hurts, my knee hurts, whatever, give me three exercises. And if I were to oblige them and say, okay, do these three things, try that out guarantee you they're not going to be any better right i because i don't know right you've got to it's got to be more specific than that you've got to get in there and evaluate it so systems in place to do that all right so two follow-ups on that so talking about evaluate it talk about a little bit about something like the biton scale and mm -hmm. and kind of how relative and accurate that is for someone either on the fitness and training side or the rehab side in terms of gauging someone's just general tendencies and towards hypermobility yeah, Biden criteria has been around a long time, you know, so yeah, it's super simple. I've really started to just kind of include that as part of my standard evaluation just for, for everyone. Because again, the people that you think are hypermobile are, are not always the case. And the people that you think are, there's no way this person's hypermobile, you'd be surprised. And it, it takes literally no time. It's, it's you know, check, check hyperextension at the elbows, check hyperextension at the knees, palm the floor on a toe touch? Can you get your thumb down to your wrist? Can you dorsiflex your finger past uh, past 90? You know, it's scored out of nine points. Usually in that four to five range out of nine is where you start getting concerned about, you know, this hypermobility. And there's been some good studies that have gone out and looked at at the biting criteria and have showed, yeah, it's got some validity to it. And, and actually people that are, you know, have some hypermobility um, measured by the biting criteria are actually a little bit of increased risk for injury. So I think being aware of that is really important. Now, you may not always be able to modify it. There's sometimes there are people that are born, we used to call it double jointed, right? And it's not, not double jointed. It's just that you're just a little bit loose. You got, you got, you got, you move a little bit more excessively, but those people, maybe that's their anatomy. Maybe that's how they're born. It may not ever go away, but you need to manage those folks a little bit differently, right? And, and, and that's why it's important that you know about it, because if you're coming in with low back pain and you're hypermobile, the last thing I'm going to do is stretch you, right? Even if I find a couple mobility problems. And I'm going to say that again, because I think that's really important, because I think that a lot of uh, my students this is where students are very black and white, right? And as professionals, this is why we're professionals, because we can think outside the box a little bit. Someone comes in with mobility, they've got one mobility problem and, and 20 motor control problems and they're hypermobile. That one mobility problem very well might be the one thing holding them all together, <laughs> right? It's kind of like they're, it's kind of like the parking brake I've heard Gray use, or, um, you know, it's just a protective mechanism that's trying to keep them stable. And then a lot of times an ambitious therapist might come around and say, oh, I'm going to drop some needles in that, or I'm going to manipulate that or whatever. It makes them a lot worse, right? Actually can make, actually can do some harm. Uh, and again, I'm, 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 I've been the, um, I've been on the end of that, you know, I've had plenty of folks that have come in that, you know, you try to do something quick and, you know, try to make an impact quick and you just, it's too much for them to handle that, that mobility problem was there protecting. So you get a lot more effectiveness. You get further with those people by actually getting more motor control, get the tone down, get the tension down. And a lot of times those little mobility problems, they bleed away. They're gone, right? They, they weren't even really a factor. They're just more of a side effect. So the only way that you can find that though, is if you do a really good evaluation. 
you know, so you've got to come in and I know you, you know, you guys both, like when you're working with your athletes, when you're working with your clients, I mean, doing some checks and rechecks, you know, doing some biomarker checks, how you're breathing today, how's your grip strength today, how's your biting criteria, you know, do some quick, you know, movement patterns, see if there's any pain, Mikos, how'd you sleep last night? I think these check-ins are really, really important before we just start going and treating everything. And, and I think that's, you know, kind of circling this all back around is, back pain management is so poor because again, you, you get back pain, you go to therapy, you get the same standard set of exercises. It doesn't work. You get, you know, discouraged. You go get to the doctor, they do MRIs, they do injections, they do more MRIs and they say, finally have some surgery. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're better, maybe not. You know, a lot of times you're not better. You know, there was a study that I read um, that came out two years ago that actually said that, a third of people that have had a spinal fusion that went in and got a, a, a because they're having a lot of pain, they went and got a lumbar spinal fusion, continue to use the high, high, um, high dose narcotic type pain medicine. So, I mean, a year after surgery. So these are folks that have pain in their low back. They, uh, assuming exhausted all their other resources, go and get spinal fusion surgery you know, and then they come out of it and a third of them are still taking the the, the high, the high level payments. And so again, we're, we're mismanaging these folks. I just really, I just believe that. All right. So uh, I'm going to throw a little something at you. Um, so right. when you're looking at the, the Biden scale, right, we've got, we've got a nine point scale. Um, have you found it sort of, uh, you know, working with, with all these individuals that you work with that certain assessments from the bite and scale carry more weight than others. So for example, if we look at an athlete, right, and they've got two elbows, they've got two knees, and they can palm the floor, but the, you know, the pinky and the thumb are, are considered normal. Are you going to approach that in a different way based off of how they're accruing their score? Or are you going to still say, look, there are some trends that say this individual may have some, some hypermobility, some laxity, and we need to pay attention to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. We actually looked at that uh, for a long time uh, internally. We we collected tons of biting uh, criteria data, and you know the other stuff too: grip strength, movement patterns, you name it. Um, and we were just we were looking for exactly that. Like, is there one particular point of the biting that you know is more weighted more than the others, right? And that that's fundamentally what you're asking. And we 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 assumed we were our assumption was it was going to be the toe touch. It was going to be that if you can palm the floor, you know, on the toe touch, then that was probably going to be a better representation of of the whole uh type of thing. And it's not as simple as just one factor. So it was toe touch did tell us a lot about it, but it really was toe touch coupled with, you know, some hypermobile uh joints at the elbow. You know, the, the, the fingers and the hands, it didn't, didn't matter as much, at least in this data set that we had. But, you know, if you had someone who can palm the floor and they had, you know, hypermobility at like their elbows or their knees, that tended to tell us quite a bit. So for people at home who are not familiar with the Biton scale, we're going to put a link in the show notes. I actually wrote an article on on this specifically, and I describe what the Biden testing is and, and how that kind of affects and, and, and impacts some decision-making. But speaking of impact and decision-making, we talked earlier about diagnosis and pathologies and then the significance of MRIs and x-rays. Now, um, in the research I've shown where it's there's a high, high percentage of times where that doesn't actually change the course of treatment at all. 
um, as well as even in conversations with clients, getting them to understand that. So as an example, I had a, a guy in who was a, a division one football player who was dealing with some back pain, who came to me and says, well, and he starts explaining his pathologies of his disc and so forth. I said, how do you know you didn't have that from a tackle your senior year in high school, right? And you're 36 now. How do we know that that's the driving, not the, the, the driver here, that that wasn't there for 10 years? How do we start to distinguish what, how much prevalence and weight we actually put into um, what you see on your MRI? Yeah, it, it, it's great because, again, traditional medical model, traditional physicians, they, they love to get their imaging, right? And, you know, it's just kind of standard practice. You go in, hey, something hurts. Okay, great. Here's your round of x-rays, you know, just like clockwork. You know, here's your medicine for that. Come back two weeks later. Oh, you're still hurting. Okay, let's try PT for six weeks. Okay, that didn't help. All right, now here's your MRI. Oh, that didn't. Now this should me see some stuff on the MRI. So now we're off to the injection uh, to try that route. And and again, you can just see how this snowballs and it gets you know kind of out of the way. It's gets carried away pretty quickly. Um, you know, imaging just doesn't really tell us the whole story. I think that you know when you have someone that has trauma. Uh, you have signs and symptoms that match the MRI. So like if I've got someone that has dropped foot and, you know, they start, they can't walk, you know, because their, their, their foot's slapping the ground and they got numbness and tingling and weakness given out. And that's a relatively new phenomenon that occurred right after they bent down to pick up their kids off the floor and they have some hot disc type symptoms. Okay. You know, I, I, I could, I could get on board with maybe that disc is symptomatic for sure. You know, and that, that probably needs imaging sooner rather than later for sure. Um, an, a young athlete, you know, I've got, you know, young, tons of younger athletes that are, you know, middle school, high school age with ex really bad extension based back pain, they play extension based sports where they're constantly, you know, doing getting beat up, they're a football quarterback, they're a baseball pitcher, they're a lineman, a gymnast, whatever. And, um, and so then they, um, they constantly are getting hurt more and more in that extension lesion. I want that x-ray a little bit sooner for those folks, right? I need to, I need to make sure that it's not a fracture, not a spondy. So those type of things matter. Younger folks are more apt to um, get the imaging early and listen to what the imaging says, right? Because if the imaging in a 16-year-old says they got a, 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 blow, a bulging disc, that actually has more weight to me that maybe that disc is actually contributing to their problems. That's, that's, that's less than ideal. Now, you take that to a 45-year-old, I would say if I were to look at an MRI of a 45-year-old, I'm absolutely going to see a bulging disc. I'd be surprised if I didn't see a bulging disc on there, right? And if you have no symptoms clinically that match that bulging disc, I would say that that's probably an artifact of aging. So, and, and, and so we get all in a tizzy sometimes about, oh, you bought a bulging disc. Let me start the bulging disc protocol. Let me pull out my three exercises that I have in my file cabinet to treat bulging discs. And the disc isn't even contributing to the problem. Right. And I think that's where we lose our objectivity a little bit. And so that's where the diagnosis actually hurts us. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guest every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So I want to go a couple more points on that. So one is the 
problem is uh, is that it's not always as simple as is, is that the dogmatic way of thinking is, well, if I have a disc issue, I'm going to avoid flexion and I'm going to do a bunch of extension-based activities. If I have anything, spondylolisthesis, stenosis, something more facet-driven in my spine, I'm going to avoid extension and do more flexion-biased things. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? Right? Sometimes it's a complete opposite. Absolutely. That's why you got you got to do the assessment. You got to do you, you know you got to do the test. I mean, I've had people before, and I wrote a, a book chapter on this years ago. Um, you know, a group that was putting together a, a book on clinical reasoning, and they said, "Hey, you got any cool case studies?" And I was like, "I don't, but uh, you know, I can I can do one uh, if you guys want." And so next week, grabbed a patient that had low back pain radiculopathy that thought for sure the world was going to you know do some extension um exercises and just clear up his radiculopathy like that it actually was flexion that helped him you know like he he we did flexion i was doing extension extension extension, kept shooting down his leg shooting down his leg and i was like oh this doesn't make any sense of course you have a bulging disc you have to have he was young too i think he was like in his you know late 20s and you know so definitely wasn't thinking stenosis wasn't thinking anything like that but you know um we did flexion and all of a sudden the symptoms just uh, centralized. He felt better. And really, honestly, just like a handful of visits. And he was doing great, uh, starting with some flexion, peppering in some good regional interdependence and some movement too. But getting him centralized first with the flexion was key. If I would have banged out extension on him for six weeks, he, of course he would have been frustrated and annoyed and more painful and probably would have fired me long before that. And then he's off to surgery, right? So it, it's just, again, it's just, we've got to be, objective and we got to trust sometimes the evaluation process and what we're seeing and what the patient's telling us as opposed to you know putting all of our eggs in the imaging bucket right so now uh, go ahead mike i was just going to say um you know one of the things that uh, eric i talk about is is in, in one of our courses is just asking the right questions and the importance of communication and one of the things that i always add in with with my low back clients is when your back hurts like what position feels good and mm-hmm. sometimes it's flexion, sometimes it's extension. To me, that's part of the assessment because they know what will make their symptoms worse and what will also potentially make them systems a little bit better, other symptoms a little bit better. So, you know, sometimes just asking, does it feel better to do this, uh, you know, prone press up, extension bias or flexion? And a lot of the times that'll tell me a lot about where I need to bias all of their drills, how we have to put their pelvis and, and how we want to set up everything once we get that basic information. So, you know, everyone's always so concerned about what's the best exercise, but quite often you just have to ask some key questions. You'll get a ton of information. That is a lot of the times, even more important, just the basic assessment where you watch someone move. Well, what's the old, the old statistic that we still teach our entry-level students is if you just sit back and listen to the patient, they'll tell you exactly what you need to do, you know, and, and, and that's, and that's true. A lot of times they'll tell you exactly what hurts and what helps and what they've tried that doesn't work. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll give you tons of information. And it, it was like with uh, not, not to dog medical doctors, but the, the, this, this study wasn't very um, fond of them. It said that the medical doctor on average interrupts the patient's uh, subjective histories uh, six seconds into into it so you know it's like all right tell me why tell me why you're here well uh thanks for seeing me today doc i've got some low back pain it started okay that, that, let me let me let me let me stop you there what kind of back pain i mean they 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 interrupt the patient and they get them off the course of their story so frequently it's hard for them to get a clear picture right and i think something that rehabilitation professionals fitness um folks do a good job of is listening to the patient. At least that's been my experience, you know, now treating it and, and, and objectively getting down the right path. I think we can still be better there, but we, we still, I think we're also as a profession, we listen and we care a lot about our patients for sure. 
Now, what makes the picture even fuzzier is the timeline that you alluded to earlier. And, and there's two ends of this is one is if I have those symptoms and then I go, okay, so I go maybe because I, I don't know any better, I go to my general practitioner who's going to then refer me to a specialist who's then going to send me out for imaging, who then I finally come back and get the images read. And by the time I finally get into your hands, weeks have passed, if not mm -hmm. more. Right. And so had you gotten me just day one, if I could have just walked in and this is one of the benefits of direct access, but had I just gone in day, day one to you, that it probably would have been cleared up kind of like our story earlier, cleared up a lot easier, but it's so far gone now that it's a significantly worse problem. So that's on one end of the spectrum. And then there's also the research that showed, like, if you were to just do nothing, it's going to go away too sometimes. Right. <laughs> well, and that really confounds it a little bit more. Well, it does. It does. I mean, there was a there was a systematic review that came out a long time ago. It's probably 20 years old now, but it's a, it was a very high level systematic review that basically said that you have back pain and you do nothing for four weeks that you're going to be, you know, uh, 60, 60 to 85 percent better. And, and that's just laying on your couch doing nothing. Right. So a lot of people bet on nothing. <laughs> right. It's, OK, well, go to PT, go do exercise, take pain medicine, whatever, or go do PT. They say, oh, well, maybe, maybe if I just, you know, ride it out, it'll get better. So I think that is, it is confusing, but I think that those times are going away. I will say we, we have, we have evolved quite a bit away from that. And I, I had an old roommate of mine that we went to undergrad together. He was a biology major. I was an exercise science major. I was going on to PT. He wanted to go on to medical school is what he really wanted to do at the time. And um, he didn't end up going to medical school, but he did end up going to physician assistant school. And he was down in Kentucky doing his physician assistant training. And I had just graduated from PT school. And I was down in Kentucky working too, outpatient clinic. He called me up one day. He goes, hey, you mind if I just come and hang out with you for the day and shadow you? And I just want to see what PTs do and what they're all about. And I said, yeah, sure. And of course, the first patient I had was just someone with acute back pain that just, you know, they just, just, just really flared up, just really painful. And for this particular person, um, they fit a mobility kind of category where they did indeed need some stretching and some joint mobilization work. And they, you know, I did my exam and found that. And so I, I manipulated the spine and worked on soft tissue of the spine and, and really did a lot of exercise. And my friend, my, that was in PA school, his, his, his jaw was on the ground this whole time. And the patient left and he goes, what in the world are you doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, they, you, you, you got that patient doing exercises and doing things like already, like they, they told you they just had back pain like a couple days ago. And, and they're, and, and, and that's, that's, you're already doing that stuff. I go, well, yeah, yeah. We want to get them up and moving and move as quickly as possible. And he goes, oh my gosh. And in my, my training at PA school, they just teach us for acute back pain to put them on bed rest for two weeks and, and, and give them a, and give them a pain medicine. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> Wow. You know, so I, it's, it's out there, but I will say, I think that is a, is a dying, is a, is a dying trend. I think we are better about trying to encourage people to get to therapy, get to um, medical management sooner. Now, whether they always abide by that or whether they get good quality therapy, that's maybe a different, different story, but. Well, let's talk about that story because the common story that you hear, especially people who've had chronic low back issues, is they come to, to Mike or myself because they've given up because, look, I've tried acupuncture, I've tried chiropractic, I've tried this, and I get temporary relief, I feel a little better, but if I'm not going there three times a week, I only feel good when I immediately get off the table and walk away, and so... 
you know, I just had this question the other day from a, 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 a kid who's getting recruited for Division One soccer. And he said, would I get any benefit from physical therapy? And I said, well, you have to kind of, that depends, right? It depends. I said, if you go in and they give you the same stuff for your knee that the old lady across the, you know, the room is getting, then you're probably not getting anything out of this. I said, if they actually do some sort of evaluation and they give you something specific to you and that's tailored and that's progressive, then yes, absolutely you can. But if you're doing the same three exercises that if you look around, they're all doing the same three exercises, then you're probably wasting your time. And so yeah, talk a a little bit about how we don't have a common language and operating system for care across, not just through, through rehab, but across all our disciplines, even for you and I to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. It's, it's a shame. And, you know, if you go into a medical doctor's office and it really doesn't matter what part of the country, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, really what the doc, where the doctor's training was, you're going to get somewhat of a standard medical evaluation, right? You're going to go in, they're going to get your height, weight. They're going to, you know, maybe have you pee in a cup. They're going to, you know, ask you about allergies and medication changes. They're going to take your heart rate, your blood pressure, you know, they're going to take your temperature. And again, you may be there just because you have a sprained ankle. You may be there because you have a sore throat. You may be there because you're just getting a checkup. They still do all those things, right? Regardless. Now, what do we do in physical therapy or even in fitness? It's okay. Why are you here? Well, I had low back pain and my physician said I should come in and get some exercises. Okay, great. Here are the exercises that I like to do for low back pain. Let me try those first. Oh, those don't help. Okay. Well, let me try now these exercises and see if those help. Oh, those help maybe a little bit, but not a whole lot. Okay. Well, let me now progress those exercises a little bit. And again, it's just more of a lot of guesswork. Right. And it seems like you're, you're throwing darts, hoping that one of them is going to stick is what that feels like. And, and again, I've seen personal trainers and, and strength coaches do the same thing where clients goal, I want to get in, I want to lose weight. I want to run, jump, run faster, jump higher. Okay, great. Here's what I like to do. Here's the program that I do that, uh, that, that make that ha- makes that happen, but it's not individualized. It's not tailored for the, the individual. So uh, I, I think that we can be better at that. So with that said, we need a, a system, a systematic approach. We need something that we can all talk about. And that, that is the one thing that like, you know, like functional movement systems does a really great job of. I mean, they're really the leading um, innovator with systematic movement evaluation and testing, right? I mean, I just don't know another system robust enough with the stack of literature to the ceiling that has really shown to be uh, a, a classification model to get people where they need to be um, and managed correctly, right? It also creates great communication within the clinic. Like I've worked with several you know, physical therapist assistants over the years that, you know, again, we can be on the same page, even if we're not even direct communication or direct line of sight, they can read what I've written in my diagnostic algorithms and follow that through the SFMA system. And then I've worked and consulted with a lot of fitness professionals too, that they're also getting, you know, performance training, you know, while I'm seeing them in the clinic and guess what we can communicate too, because I've got FMS scores, you know, functional move screen, Y balance scores, like, Hey, here's the painful pattern that we, maybe we want to avoid for now, but oh my gosh, all these other patterns are go for it, you know, train the, train the heck out of those. And I'm working on this pattern from a a corrective exercise perspective, but if you've got other exercises that you want to throw at that to make that better, go ahead, you know, but again, we can create a network and a dialogue to work together because I think naturally, and this is what most new personal trainers have said to me when I, the new kid in town, I come in and say, let's create a relationship. The first thing they say is if I refer all my athletes that are having pain to you, 
I'm not going to, I'm going to be out of business because there's no one, I'm going to give them all to you and they're never going to come back. And that, again, that's not what I want to have happen. I, I don't want to, you know, poach patients. I want to get a patient, identify what's creating stress and pain and you keep training them, you know, keep working with them, but let's, let's not do things that are causing uh, to, to, you know, that are that are expediting their pain. Right. And same thing is, we need from the fitness and, and strength and conditioning perspective, at some point, this athlete's going to have to lift heavy things, <laughs> right? I think another pet peeve I have in therapy is we don't take a very good strength and conditioning approach. We are doing, you know, three sets of 30 with little one pound weights. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're saying, oh, it hurts to run. Let's just not do that anymore or, or run less or just, just cross train. Again, maybe there's a time and a place for that. But largely, the person wants to get back to doing those activities. And I think we have a big underdosing problem in physical therapy, you know, where we just aren't preparing uh, folks. I don't know if you guys see that in your, in your practice or not with, 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 you know, people coming, bouncing in and out of rehab. But I just feel like, you know, we are physical therapists generally don't understand strength and conditioning principles, nor do they load the patient appropriately enough with appropriate amount of weight to even prepare them for the loads of everyday life. Well, yeah, on our side, we don't understand what, what you do enough either. And nothing, mm -hmm. you know, to your statement earlier, if you are a fitness professional strength coach and you make that statement that you said earlier that, oh, I'm scared that if I refer somebody to Kyle, that I'm going to lose a client, nothing you should, that that's a red light screaming that I am a shitty fitness professional if mm -hmm. I'm scared of that, right? right? If I'm intimidated by that. But go ahead, Mike, I know you have a, your, your next question <laughs> you want to roll on to. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what other lifestyle factors um, do you think contribute to low back issues? And also, let's talk about a differential diagnosis, because uh, there could be some medical issues, right? And how important is it for people to get a second opinion in a differential diagnosis? It, it, it's great. It's, it's crazy important. I mean, now, here's the good thing. I'll start with I'll start with the good thing. The good thing is these severe sinister conditions that exist, you know, you think about cancers and, and, uh, you know, bone cancers and fractures and breaks and you know all the, the the scary stuff you know that that you don't want to run into they're 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 very uncommon you know a lot of times they've been screened out well before they get to the therapist or to the strength coach a lot of times you know these are identified and very rarely it's i, I say less than one percent of the time uh, there's some data on that i'm not just guessing less than one percent of the time that their back pain is actually cancer or whatever now not to say that you shouldn't check it and and screen for that and the best way to do that from a differential standpoint is to make sure you cover all your bases just like in a systematic approach that your medical doctor takes height weight blood pressure they always do it no matter what we should get in the habit of always doing neuro screening, reflexes, myotomes, dermatome checks, always asking about, you know, where the pain is, does it move, does it travel, always asking about uh, lifestyle and any changes with like bowel and bladder function or recent infections and fevers, you know, those type of things, because the, you know, those sister conditions or constitutional symptoms, if we're getting multiple checks in that category, then we're going to, we're going to want to refer them. We're going to want to get imaging. And, and it does happen. There are people out there that truly need surgery that truly have, um, uh, um, uh, you know, conditions that mask themselves as musculoskeletal, uh, pain. And, and so we don't want to miss that. I mean, it's, I had a patient several years ago that was 75. He had low back pain. I couldn't find the pain. Like I was literally poking all the proton, stretching, moving, couldn't reproduce it, treat him one session, 
She said, it's the same. I said, this doesn't smell right. Send him back to the doc. They did some blood work and, you know, he ended up having diverticulitis. They put him on some medicine and guess what? He called me a week later and said, great, I feel great. I'm so glad you sent me back. I'm like, okay, great. You know, but I mean, I'll take half the credit for it, but I mean, it, it's, it's really making sure that we are addressing what we need to address and then referring out when we need to refer out. Yes. Mike, you know, a guy with a story like that, right? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, for those of you that don't know, um, you know, I've had chronic back pain on and off actually throughout my life. And uh, over the last five years, it's gotten a lot worse and it never went away and nothing seemed to help. Um, and then I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer and I had uh, basically a, a lacrosse ball sized tumor uh, that was, you know, that was, uh, you know, bothering my, my, my spinal cord and, and everything sort of down in that neck of the woods. So now, granted, like you said, that is an extreme case, right? That's not every day, but I think as coaches, especially me, um, I'm always telling, you know, my staff and people that I work with, hey, look, like if you get to the point where you can't figure it out, maybe this is just something that you can't figure out and you need to go ahead and you need to you need to do your due diligence and, and go through the process of finding the right clinicians and medical professionals. And when it is time for imaging, um, it's super important because, uh, you know, that that's just one of those things that could be potentially adding to it. Yes. Did I have disc issues in the past? And did I do some dumb things when I was lifting as a young athlete? Absolutely. But, you know, at the end of the day, I got that, uh, I got that surgery and got my, my, you know, tumor taken out and my back felt better. A bunch of other things felt like crap, but my back felt better. So that's a, it's a pretty extreme example, but it's important for people to understand, especially when they're dealing with low back pain, you know, it, there's so many things that it could be, and it's multifactorial. And, and why would you guess? Like, why would you just be like, it's probably nothing if you can't figure it out? To me, that is just, uh, that's the worst thing you can do. Right. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. That's, that's absolutely, it's almost like borderline negligence. You found, you found a problem, you found an issue just because you don't know what to do with it. Just because you don't know how to handle it. You just dismiss it. Right. That, that, that's definitely an, an inexcusable approach. And, you know, therapists and, 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 you know, strength coaches for the most part, I, I feel like, you know, have a pretty good perspective of individual limitations. Like, I think I'm a fairly good clinician that, that, that has decent manual skills and de decent diagnostic skills. I know the limitations. So when I reach the point where I've kind of done everything I know to do or can do for a patient, and if that's not helped them, I either need to get them off to someone better than me, or I need to get, you know, more advanced medical procedures. What I shouldn't do is just keep banging my head against that rock using direct access for, you know, years and years and years and letting a potentially festering problem get worse. Right. So have, have, um, I think have the, um, bravery, have the courage, as a, as a healthcare provider, as a fitness professional, to know when you're kind of out of your lane or know when you've just got the limit of your of your capability and make the referral to the next level of care. It's totally fine. You know, it's, our, it's, it's what we're supposed to do. Now, when we have this discussion, I always preface it saying, you know, if this scares the shit out of you a little bit, good, because th this is real stuff that could walk in your office. If Mike walked in your office and you hand them a lacrosse ball and say, here, roll that out, you know, that's negligence. Now on the, on the on the other side, it's also hopefully getting everybody to up their game because of the impact that we can have. And I tell a story of of a fork in the road um, that we can have. And if you look at and you kind of alluded to this before, and, and the story I, that I use is actually a, a guy that we both know, Mike Contreras, who does um, who does a lot of work with with working with utility workers out in California. And uh, I was out doing some work with him, and I remember having a guy come up to us. And he goes, hey, Mike, you remember me? And he's like, I'm sorry. He says, well, you probably don't recognize me. I lost 100 pounds. 
And he says, wow. He says, really? He goes, that's awesome. What happened? He said, well, I've always had pain. And I, it's not that I didn't want to work out. It's just that it sucked. It always hurt. And then, you know, what he did is he went into these, these, uh, these electrical workers and he gave them uh, things to improve the movement after doing some movement screening on them. And then they, that was part of what their job was as part of their safety meetings. They had to go do a series of, of drills based on what their category was in terms of their movement deficiencies. He said, I started doing those and I started feeling a little bit better, started feeling a little better, started going for walks. And then I started going for walks and you know, and then I started getting, started getting to hiking and then, you know, start exercising more. And I, I didn't want to go home and eat crap. So I started eating better. Lo and behold, I'm off medications. And next thing you know, here I am a year later and I feel great and I'm hundred pounds down. Now that's, it. he hit a fork in the road and Mike happened to be the guy to bump him in the right direction. Now let's say if he doesn't get that, let's say if he goes and he gets the cookbook, whack him and crack him, heat ultrasound stim, you know, three times a week and he goes. Well, there's three things. He's got three options. One, the, the, the doctor is first going to send him to PT. He goes to that PT and he gets that, that kind of off the, off the rack treatment. What's going to happen? He's going to come back in a couple of weeks and he's say, well, PT didn't work. He's a, a, he's a failed patient. So now he's down to two options. He's got drugs or he's got surgery um, and or both. And like you said, that's a really slippery slope right there. When you talk about the level of addiction to, to, to opiates and, and, and they, they fa the high level of failure in surgery. And then what's going to happen? Not only does the back pain or whatever pain not go away, but now this guy, he's been labeled as failed. He always hurts. Do you think he wants to get up and have a kale salad, you know, or go for a walk anytime soon? Like that is so impactful on someone's life. If you can do it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, could could agree more. I mean, it, it's it's truly setting them up for failure because they get in their mind that then they're they're broken, they're they can't be fixed, and you know I failed PT, oh I failed surgery, and you know it, it's it, again it just it you know the pain neuroscience of pain is a real thing, you know that we're, we learn more and more about that, but you know certainly people that go chronic with with these back conditions. And there's some fundamental chemical changes in the brain and it makes them more prone to having more symptoms and being more fearful of movement, more fearful of things like physical therapy and exercise. And, you know, I've always said a lot of the people that are overweight, that are trying to improve their lifestyle, they're trying to exercise more, they're trying to help themselves. A lot of times they encounter orthopedic issues first, right? They, they encounter knee pain, back pain, whatever, and it creates a bad situation and a bad day for them. So they say, well, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And then it's a vicious cycle because then you get cardiovascular risk factors, uh, musculoskeletal risk factors, metabolic risk factors, you name it. And that's that's, that's obviously an issue. So we got to do it right. And a lot of times we only have one or two shakes at it. Uh, but if we don't set the patient up on the right pathway, uh, we may have done some damage that's really hard to recover from. Now, let's go one more thing just to drive it back the other way. So we talked about how the musculoskeletal may show up and it's driving, it could ultimately drive to uh, deleterious lifestyle implications. Well, what about when the lifestyle drives the musculoskeletal? You talked your story about breathing and how that changed and how much of that was not anything musculoskeletal, joint, muscle, anything lengthening, strengthening, or changing of anything other than you created a shift in their in their autonomic nervous system by getting them to become a little more parasympathetic and out of that fight or flight type of situation. So, you know, Mike alluded to before about lifestyles factors that may play in that, you know, your mobilization, your stretch, your exercise isn't going to overcome, like you said, the guy who's drinking Mountain Dew and smoking a pack a day and not sleeping. 
Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, it, it's in in a, in a relatively healthy young, you know, uh, sample of PT students. You know, you have all those people that can't touch their toes and get better with breathing. And it's probably not more, not musculoskeletal driven per se. It is probably very anxiety driven or, you know, stress driven, right? Because, you know, they're PT students, they're studying all the time. They're sitting in chairs all day long. They're, you know, they get out of that high threshold strategy a little bit, all of a sudden, you know, things open up and move better, but, you know, hundred percent, I mean, it's, it's, not everything has to be a muscle or a joint problem, right? And I feel like when you're a physical therapist, and again, I, I'm a physical therapist, so I can say this about the profession. Sometimes it's a license uh, to stretch and strengthen. And sometimes the first thing you need to do is question, well, why is it tight even to begin with? And is exercise the first solution? And in Mike's case, you know, it, exercise is not the first solution. It needs to be something completely different, right? And in some, then into a little bit lower level to a lesser degree than, 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 you know, stage three cancer, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that, yeah, I can stretch your neck and I can stretch your back and I can make you feel better for 30 minutes that you're here, but you go right back to your desk job where you're sitting hunched over in bag ergonomic position and you're doing that for eight hours a day, five days a week, I'm going to lose. Doesn't matter how good a therapist I am. I'm losing that battle, right? So I think the environmental factors play a large role. This is where we have to get better at educating and, 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 and telling patients exactly what has to occur for the healing to be optimized. And Starts with good diagnostics, good coaching, good pathway, good plan. You got to get by and you got to get them to stick with you because like you guys have both alluded to right now, what happens a lot of times I have pain. Someone talks me into going to therapy. I do it. I have a bad experience. I waste a lot of time, waste a lot of money. I go end up down the medical pathway that ends in surgery and I'm not even a lot better because of it. And they have a, you think the next time that they have a problem, they're going to go to therapy again or their friend or their kids that have problems, you think they're going to recommend therapy or recommend that path for them? Not a chance. And those are become the statistics of people that are living with musculoskeletal pain every day that aren't seeking care, right? We got to change that. Scary stuff, but uh, it's very, very informative and, and, and incredibly impactful. So before we wrap things up, Mr. Perry, any last things that you want to throw at it? I mean, when it comes to low back pain, I think we could probably be here all day, but um you know, uh, you know, I think um, sort of one last question I just want to throw in is, is, um, and this is really just for the younger athletes. Um, you know, I feel like these kids just aren't recovering, right? They're just doing too much day in and day out. And let me ask you this, how much of a, how much of, of a lot of these issues do you feel are simply overscheduling and not just having enough time for a little R&R? I think, I think a lot of it, and that's, that's becoming quickly becoming one of the biggest factors, like environmentally too, especially for the younger kids is their schedules are crazy, right? You know, you're, you're up at six, you're at school all day, you're, you're, you know, you got practice after school, and then maybe even like another type of event or club meeting after that, you're at home, you're doing homework, then, you know, you want a little time for video games, you want a little time for friends, you're not getting to bed till midnight, and then you're up again the next day. And then on the weekends, you're traveling to games, some people are playing multiple sports and during the same season, right? And there's no off season for these kids either, because they're in travel ball, they're in other leagues. And so again, it just never stops. So I, I do 
do think that that's a very valid point that under under not getting enough sleep, not getting enough rest. And then when you are on the road, when you are engaged with all these clubs and different sports, it's real easy to say, well, I'm not going to get home and get a good home cooked meal either. So I'm going to pick up, you know, the sandwich from the gas station or hit, uh, grab some Mickey D's. And now you're compounding under recover, under sleep, stress with, you know, bad fuel in the system. And now you're expecting this Corvette to run at high performance. And it's, it just, eventually the rubber is going to meet the road and you're just going to run out of, of chances and something's going to break down. The take home message kids, gas station sandwiches are the end, (laughs) they are gateway drug to the end of, of everything that you ever wanted. Um, And then, yeah, you add all that on top of really bad physical literacy as a baseline um, because we don't have PE and then it's it's a recipe for disaster. But this has uh, been awesome as I expected, Dr. Matzel. And and you are a man of many hats who has, you know, about as many jobs as someone can have. Tell me uh, what you got next on the agenda in in your life. Well, thanks. Uh, Yeah, the most uh, the most. immediate, I guess, thing that we're doing is we just launched a a PhD program here at the University of Evansville. It's a first PhD program uh, kind of here at the unit in the the Evansville area that we've got several clinical doctorates, but this is truly a academic research focused PhD. Uh, So we've been working on this for a couple of years. Really, the mission at UE has always been to be part of the solution. And what we found is that in healthcare, there's so many healthcare shortages out there with nurses, therapists, you know, physician assistants, there's a lot of burnout in healthcare. You know, it doesn't really matter what field you're in, you name it, people are wanting to get out of it. Um, and uh, also from a faculty standpoint, there's a lot of people near retirement age uh, that are going to not be teaching anymore. And you compound that with all these new programs that are developing. I mean, blink your eye and there's a new online PT program going up, you know, and it's the same thing with physician assistant, pharmacy, you name it. They're all growing at a rapid rate. You got to have faculty to be able to even teach these folks and and to teach them well, right? You know, we don't want to just machine operate, you know, professionals out there. So really, we created this program under the intention of trying to train the next generation of educators so that that will trickle down to the next generation of healthcare provider. Um, so it's a it's an online program centered out of the University of Evansville, two and a half year doctoral pro, doctoral program uh, that you can get your PhD on. Uh, they talked me into being the co- program director. So if you have questions, you can reach out to me uh, for that. Uh, but that that starts in January. So our first cohort. Exciting stuff. Spectacular. And we definitely need to get... Uh get that out there. We don't need any more machine manufactured physicians out there. As they say, Mr. Perry, somewhere out there is the world's worst doctor. And Monday morning, someone's got an appointment with him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And with that, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. We want to thank you, Dr. Matzel. Uh, and thank you, Mr. Perry. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on our social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.